All right, let's get started. Welcome, good afternoon everyone. Thank you for joining. This is RIT 207, Next Generation E-Commerce Architectures. I am Bastien Leblanc, I'm a solution architect for AWS. For the last two years, I've been working with uh, retail customers in the UK. And I'm very pleased to be joined by Charlie Wilkinson from River Island. Hey guys. So yeah, I'm, I'm Charlie, uh, I'm the head of architecture at River Island. Uh, and I'm here uh, talking with Bastian because uh, we've actually deployed some of this stuff uh, in production. Uh, we've actually, uh, so we're gonna talk you through some of that. Um, but uh, for, for context, River Island is a, a, a pretty big fashion retailer in the UK, for those who don't know, high street retailer. Um, we've been undergoing massive digital transformation and part of that has been uh, adopting uh, AWS services uh, and, and next generation architectures in the form of uh, serverless. So the, the big thing, just for, for context for you guys, that we've done is we've actually taken all of our uh, web order processing, so everything from the, where a website uh, produces orders uh, right through to the, where we dispatch those and pick and pack and dispatch from our uh, warehouse, and we've made that whole pipeline uh, serverless. So it's pretty cool. So we're going to talk a little bit about that today. Yes, pretty cool. Um, so actually, when we think about designing this session, we think about how we can get you the best practices and the, the right design decision around getting your e-commerce to the next level. It's a two-handle level, so we won't dive deep into each of the specific services we mentioned, but we'll more give you guidelines and where you should go and also um, to learn from uh, Revival experience on uh, serverless and how they build this uh, next generation yeah. e-commerce. So we, talking with uh, customers around the globe, especially who have retail systems, we came up with the, these three topics. Um, because the first one is you probably all have an e-commerce platform, an existing retail system, a website that gets your orders, that manage your orders, your order management, how to modernize it using AWS without rebuilding everything. So that's the first part. Then the second part is how to build this next generation e-commerce from the ground up, functionalities by, by functionalities. And this is how, uh, Charlie, you've been doing that at River Island, and we're gonna dive into this one. And the first section, we wanted to talk about is event sourcing. That's a, a classical architecture uh, principle uh, that really connects to an e-commerce website. Yeah. Okay, let's get started. E-commerce, it's hard. That's what I heard from customers, and it's actually getting harder. And the first challenge we usually hear is about scale. And when you talk about scale, it is very different from customers to other. On the left, you have uh, the, um, the scale from Amazon.com retail. On the past few years, it has a quite substantial growth. And you see these massive peaks, which are actually quite predictable. It's the holiday season. It's the Black Friday we had a few days ago. It's predictable, it's massive. And on the other side, you have a fashion retailer uh, like Misguided or yeah. also Revilon, which is very different. Yeah, it's, it, it, you're, you're right, Bastian. So it's, there are, it obviously it depends on your workload, but in, in fashion retail, uh, um, things can change overnight. So um, th this example uh, uh, shown up here is from uh, uh, Misguided. Uh, they are, as a, as a company, they work uh, very closely with sort of brand ambassadors through uh, Instagram and Facebook and, and, and the like. Uh, and those people have millions and millions of followers and the hit rate from customers when they push something through their Instagram uh, feed is, is instantaneous. And so you, you don't have peaks of you know, a few days or, or, or hours, you've got peaks of like 60 seconds uh, where you get 90% of your traffic straight through. So you know, if you're, if you're um, as the market changes and the way that consumers uh, interact with brands changes, uh, so does the uh, scale challenge. Because uh, you, you don't really want to have servers sat around for that 90% peak only for three minutes. Um, it's not really practical. Yeah, so, that, so that's, a, that's a very hard challenge. 
Um, so that's very different, but actually in the end, you are still having to scale based on your customer request. And if you want to scale as a misguided do or revenant and do within a few seconds, then you probably have to do something on your system, on your existing system, because you probably can't scale at this, uh, uh, at this speed. But that's, the, that's not the only challenge. And another important challenge is how do you upgrade or adapt your system? And, w and the other important thing here, I think, is where's going your business? What is your next step? How can you make sure that your retail system is actually future-proof? That you probably will open a new department or you will open in a new country and you have to deploy to this country. Yeah. For this, you have to have a system that you are able to upgrade or adapt and not in years because now the business is showing up. So it has to be in days yeah. if it's possible. Personally, I no, I no longer subscribe to the idea that, uh, uh, that you know, it's okay to have a, or, or essentially even to have a you know, five-year roadmap, uh, architecture roadmap. Frankly, if, you, if you're doing that, you kind of miss the point in my view because uh, being able to respond to change and, and new things, that, you know, new ideas the business comes up with, if you can respond to that challenge, that's the mission. Um, you know, if, you, if you need to have a five-year roadmap, you know, you mean, that implies you've got a crystal ball that you know what the business is going to want to do and what challenges will exist in the marketplace in five years. Uh, and frankly, I, I think that's, you know, that's no longer the world we live in. Definitely. And so we used to do that. And you probably all do, used to do that, and some still doing that, is buying new servers. You want to scale, you have new, new customers. Well, you buy, a bigger, you buy a bigger box, or you even refuse connections, and you end up telling your business, well, I can't do more. Let's go back to your business. We got to find a better way. I think we all agree on this. Um, so that's why we want to start with the first option you have, is to modernize your existing retail system on AWS, and, and let's see um, how it works. So working with retailers around the globe, we've seen these three commercial platforms largely used, um, IBM WebSphere, Oracle uh, e-commerce, and SAP Hybris. And of course, there's a lot more. We could mention Magento, WooCommerce, etc. But in the end, if you look at these architectures, they all share the same principles. So we'll don't dive into each of this. You can check out on our website, on our blog post. We have plenty of specific documentation for each of these uh, platforms. Instead, we're going to go into uh, more architectural principles on how to modernize it uh, while lifting, while moving into AWS. So that's the typical end-tier e-commerce platform. You've probably all seen that. You probably have this in your enterprise right now. You have a database. You have a bunch of application servers. You have a bunch of front-end servers, a load balancer serving your users from devices, mobile or or laptops, looks nice, right? So what's the problem here? So actually, there's a, first there's a resonancy problem. You have single point of failures everywhere. You could have a database problem. You could have a application server problem. And every one of this incident will get a downtime for your whole application. Upgrades. How many times do you release on this type of systems? Probably not very often, because it's actually very risky. Because you update one of the components, you have to update the whole application server. You have to update the whole database. And you risk downtime again. And sometimes these systems have, to be, uh, have been around for a lot of years, and operations can be quite tricky. So let's assume. You have the intention of lifting and shifting this system to AWS. What's the first step to go through? So the, the first step and the most important component in your 
retail system, the classical legacy is the database. Because it's the single point of failure, if you lose your database, you lose your whole retail. You lose your whole website. So it has to be highly available. It has to be reliable. If there's a failure, technical failure, it has to fail over automatically. And scalable, we have to, ma to, to have a massive scale, like we mentioned. And massive scales goes down to your database. So if you move to AWS, you have these great options of moving to Amazon RDS, which supports a lot of open source and also commercial systems like Oracle or SQL Server, or the open source uh, like MySQL. And the good thing is when you move to a managed database, well, you get out of the box, managed for you, backups, okay, very good, but especially multi-AZ, which um, manage the resiliency of your database in case of failure, it falls back to another variety zones yeah. without you doing anything. And we mentioned scale. On an e-commerce platform, it's very read heavy. We see about 70, 80% of reads versus writes on some systems. So if you are able to scale out with read replicas, then you get the scale possible that we mentioned earlier, even in ma as a, and a massive um, possibilities. Okay, so we got a, a better database. What about the application layer? Again, it has to scale. So the first answer is probably, and you probably all know that we have auto scaling. You can add new server or remove new servers based on metrics, order per minute, CPU, number of uh, requests coming in. That's very good in a perfect world. But actually, in some systems, like we're looking at uh, legacy systems, that can be a challenge because of one specific problem is the startup time of your components. And we've seen that, and I know that, Charlie, you've, you've seen that, that with Ryan on, on Hybris, for example. Yeah, in, in, indeed. So um, what's the word? It, the, while uh, you can get all these, this auto-scaling, and, and we'll come on to that in a second, it, it is worth noting that these, um, one, one thing that is difficult to overcome uh, is that these, these traditional stacks, if you do sh lift and shift them, uh, you will probably still face an issue that auto-scaling, um, while great, if your application takes you know, a minute or, or, or sometimes, you know, I've, seen, I've seen hybrid stacks that take 10 minutes to start, um, uh, it, it, that means that your, your auto-scaling is limited by how quickly your application can start. So um, it, it, in reality, uh, you're still going to want to probably pre-provision based on, uh, uh, you know, if, you, if you can predict your load um, where you can, um, so, so it doesn't, doesn't quite get you all the way, but that's, that's a feature of these types of uh, you know, big heavy, uh, particularly big heavy Java stacks that take a long time to load, you know, load all the classes and, and what have you. Um, so yeah. Maybe you could uh, dive a bit more in your yeah. Hybris example. So, 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 so I've, uh, well, I, I used to build uh, Hybris uh, applications for a living, did it for about 10 years. Um, so th there's a great uh, article by uh, uh, Pixel Retail um, who, who do a great job uh, of, uh, of uh, shifting a hybris onto, uh, onto the cloud, onto Amazon. Uh, and they, they've come up with a, a pattern here that we've, we've um, uh, just drawn out. So you can sort of get a, a picture of the type of services that you can use. So you've got that web, web tier in the front, which supports your, uh, you know, your, your static assets, CSS, HTML, um, uh, and, and image assets, that sort of thing. You stick that in auto-scaling group, you can scale that independently. That'll be your Apache web server, perhaps, or uh, IIS if you're a Microsoft shop. Um, you've then got your uh, a load balancer, uh, ALB, or uh, in between uh, from there to your actual, in this case, it's a hybrid implementation, but your, your application server nodes. And again, you'd have those in a distinct cluster uh, with auto-scaling. Uh, in all these examples, we've got the two uh, lines here. Um, representing uh, a split across availability zones, which is um, you know, data centers in the, in the real world. Um, so you can split those auto-scaling groups across uh, availability zones, which is awesome. 
Uh, same thing then across, you get to your, your um, solar server in the case of uh, Hybris, uh, where you've, you've got a, a solar for your search often, but it could be you know, Endeka or, or, or whatever your uh, search uh, flavor of choice is. Um, and then you may actually also have uh, your sort of back office uh, uh, dedicated instances uh, for uh, perhaps uh, call center, for example. I've seen that, that use case uh, where you've got potentially a large um, uh, shift in call center agents between certain hours of the day. Uh, again, you can use auto-scaling to respond to that as well. So that, that's quite a nice feature. Um, I didn't, on this, on this, when I was whipping this diagram up, I, did, I didn't actually bother putting, uh, showing all the tiers of um, Amazon Aurora, uh, mostly because it's so simple that it, it's probably not uh, worth worrying about. The, the, the um, actually dealing with uh, multi-AZ and, and, and uh, as Bastian was saying, backups and all of that stuff, if you use RDS or, or the Aurora service, that, that stuff becomes so trivialized that you can, you know, from an architectural point of view, you just draw it as a box, it's my database, and I don't have to worry about the fact that it's resilient. It's just, it's just done for me, um, which is awesome. Uh, what else are we gonna say about this one? Um, we can also, uh, with, with this model, you can, you can start to do things like blue-green deployments. So if, you're, if your application, and, and certainly uh, Hybris supports this, uh, I'm not up to date on uh, ATG, I'm not sure whether or not they can do that, but you can actually start to roll out um, your changes across some of those instances uh, within the cluster. Um, you can start to do smart things with your load balancers to uh, shift only a segment of traffic onto the new boxes. Yep. So you can start to do smart things like that, and the, the Amazon Toolkit's designed to let you do that, so you can start to do you know, kind of a blue-green deployment across your estate. Cool. So, uh, really quickly, we, we actually started with this uh, at River Island when we, when we started on our cloud journey. Um, lifting and shifting your existing e-com stack uh, is, is a really good place to start because actually, you, you know, you're not necessarily fundamentally renovating your architecture, right? It's, it's, a, it's a system that your people are familiar with, you know, that you're comfortable in understanding how to operate it and, and your teams are, are familiar with. So actually, it's a great place to start to, to then learn how to use Amazon and you know that some of the mundane things like how are you going to set up your billing organization how are you going to you know or orchestrate your teams around these services really start to understand how it's different to run things in the cloud than to run things on more traditional infrastructure uh, and that's more sort of an operational behaviors uh, and culture that you need to start building around that so it's a great place to start because uh, if you're trying to also do that whilst you're trying to build a whole new radical uh, infrastructure and a new architecture, you, you, you know, that's, that's a lot to take on in one chunk. So this is where um, River Island started. Uh, and as you can see, we, we did something fairly similar. Uh, we've got a traditional three-tier uh, .NET stack. Uh, and, and essentially, we've done the same thing. Uh, that's exactly where we started. Yeah, so uh, it's, like, like Charlie said, it's a good place to start. And so, but then the next step is to build your actual next generation architecture, because this is where you will get the whole benefits of using AWS or using cloud. Uh, so let's go into your next gen architecture. And first, why should you build this? Because you have an existing retail system, so that's probably good enough. Probably not, because you have your business asking more and more changes and you are probably pushing back to freezing period or because it's risky to upgrade or because it's it's too complex to upgrade and we've seen customers having a freeze period longer and longer and sometimes going for several months before the peak period freezing with no changes on their website and that's not the way to to go um, so that's why in a new architecture, you should have scale, yes, but you should have also agility to be able to shut down a department or to be able to add a new functionality in your web page without impacting, without risking the rest of your business. Or you should add new functionality in your search without touching your product pages. And what if you could have a better uptime, actually, with more changes? That sounds counterintuitive, but that's actually possible with AWS. 
So we came up with these principles from our customers' discussion. So the first one I was mentioning is future-proof. You never know what's going to be your future. So make sure that you are building a system that can adapt, that can be closed also, that can add functionalities without having months and months and months of projects of decision making and just going on the spot. Business oriented, that's a very important one. Don't start from your IT. Start from talking to your business on, or to your customers actually directly on saying, what do you want? Where can I get more value from our IT? And build a functionality from here. Cost effective. What we mean with cost effective is it has to be correlated to your activities. You don't want to overpay a big box for five years if your business is going down or slowing down. Or you want to have a cost that correlates to your actual activity. Decoupled. That's a very important architecture principle, is to be able to build a system that doesn't uh, risk the other parts of your IT. So when you come to a new feature, you shouldn't have to go to every team in your enterprise just because it doesn't work. It's, that's where you get six months or years of project that never ends. A, a decoupled yeah, architecture uh, is more future-proof by default. Yeah. Uh, and and I, would, I would go so far as to say that uh, ability to change your systems easily is probably one of the most important non-functional requirements. It's it, it right up there with resilience, uh, in my opinion. Yeah. And, and the, next one, the, the last one is resilience, actually. Yeah. Operation optimized, because you are running a customer-facing website, customer-facing application. So you want to have the best availability possible. And for this, you have to have operation optimized automation. It has to self-heal. You don't want to wait for your uh, on-call to connect to your application to boot up the application server. No, that's going to be dealt later on. You want your architecture to be up with, with, no, with no human operations. Or it's also wor yes. worth thinking as well, uh, something that we've, we've observed through our experiences in, in building a more decoupled architecture is that actually the operability goes up just by the nature of the fact that you, you're, you're decoupling things into smaller units. Because when, you, when you're dealing with you know, huge uh, monolithic applications, you know, your people who are on call, on support, have to be experts in this massive package. Uh, you know, and it takes a long time for people to get there. Uh, and typically as well, th those people consequently are very experienced and very expensive. And a lot of them don't really want to do on-call work. So if you can break stuff down into smaller chunks, it becomes much, much, much easier to support uh, th those, those chunks. And actually, teams are much more willing to do that just because you know, they're passionate about what they do. But most people, are, hopefully, are in, in a situation where you know, their people are passionate about what they do. Uh, and so if you can make it easier for them to do that, actually, you find that people will um, uh, respond, respond better to those incidents and, and uh, resolve them quicker as well. OK, so let's build the, this architecture. Uh, but we got to stop somewhere. So how did you decide which functionality to build first? How do you start? Well, so <laughs> I question. guess let, let's, uh, <laughs> let's jump on uh, one, one click. There we go. Yeah. That's cool. So, so really, uh, you, know, I, I, you guys can probably tell I'm pretty passionate about this. It's really important to figure out what your mission statement is. What are you actually trying to do? What problem are you trying to solve? So uh, for, for myself and for, for my team, um, we, we were pretty clear. Our, our mission statement, our primary goal was to increase business agility. It was to allow the business to make new changes, to introduce new features faster, above, above all else. That, is, that was our, our stated objective. Um, you know, if you're a bank, uh, then perhaps uptime or, or uh, security would be your primary concerns. So you need to really think carefully about what you're actually trying to do. Um, we're, you know, at River Island, we're in a um, fortunate position where we've got a business that's you know, actually reasonably comfortable with, uh, with risk management and, and uh, uh, taking, taking uh, uh, managed risk decisions. So um, you know, ultra, ultra resilience, ultra security, whatever, is probably not the primary. 
ability to change is, is more important to us. So that was where we started. So any e-com stack, um, any e-com appliance, I guess, you know, really you can, you, it can be difficult to think about where, where you're going with it and how, how do you even begin to break this thing down. But in reality, all of them really have the same sorts of features, right? You, you've got a search, uh, search capability, you've got product catalog management, you've got you know, consumer profiles, carts, checkout flows, um, you've got promotions engine, recommendations engine, all of these sorts of things. And actually, each one of those components, you could tackle independently. Right? You can start to think of each one of them as, as capabilities that you want to um, uh, build and operate and, and, uh, and you know, serve to your business as, as, as capabilities, business capabilities. So you can actually uh, pick one and start with that. Right? So uh, in, in our case, uh, for, for, for context, we actually decided that, that we were going to start with the way that we take web orders from our website uh, and process them through our uh, distribution center and our core merchandising and uh, through to the pick, pack, and ship uh, uh, systems as well. So we, we took that as our first um, area to tackle with this. But equally, we could have chosen search or we could have chosen any of the other the functionalities. We just picked the thing that would have the biggest, big, biz, biggest business impact for us earliest. So that was the, that was the drive. Um, so really, I, I guess the, the steps would be once you picked a, picked a zone, uh, picked a capability you want to build out, there are really some pretty simple steps. You need to figure out how do you break that up, break up that monolith into these chunks, um, build these services independently, uh, think of your product search as an independent component, uh, not, not a part of a larger whole. Um, tie things together with, uh, with APIs where it needs to be synchronous or uh, with some other patterns we're going to talk about in a minute where, uh, where it can be asynchronous. Um, expose business events. This, this, for me, if you, if you guys take away one thing from today, it would be that making your, your business events, the things that are going on in your business, a new customer's created, a new order's placed, um, you know, a product is created, those business events, those are the things that capture, have, hold the value of your business and represent what you're actually doing commercially. So if you can expose those and make them available, that's really, really, really powerful. Um, and, and again, I guess, finally, you know, focus your design around not one big lump anymore, but around specific capabilities that you want to deliver as a business capability in its own right. So, yes, if we talk about more design implementation choices that you have to come up uh, based on your mission statement, like you've done, Charlie, and how, how did you actually decide technically what we are going to do? Um, we are building microservices. Each of these functionality will be one service. So the first thing is probably to think about how they will exchange messages, business events. So we'll talk about decoupling and messaging. How do you um, use queuing services or streaming services? And the second design implementation you have to do is how do you store the data? And this is where you have to choose between a database, a NoSQL database, or actually an object store like Amazon S3, or probably a mix of several things. Yeah. And we'll see that there's no right or wrong decision here. It's just, and each service can be different based on their requirements. And of course, the first one is to have to choose your compute, where you will actually run your business logic. What's your next generation platform will run on? Probably not on direct servers. Well, let's hope not. Um, and for, for the compute, the, the principles are well, very straightforward from what we discussed. It has to be flexible. It has to be able to do massive scale as quickly as possible. So you want, you want to avoid as much as possible startup time loading libraries, loading stuff on your instances. So third principle, cost-effective, like I mentioned earlier, is your compute has to be correlated to your request and not based on a budget that you had the year before. And efficient code delivery, because you want to have more updates when your compute has to be in your CI/CD automated 
and be able to adapt uh, quickly. So we on purpose, uh, on purpose we didn't mention EC2 here because we think that that's not the way to go if you are building a new architecture. It has to be either containers or serverless. Yeah, it, it's the, 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 the example I would use, the way that we describe it at River Island is, you know, we're a fashion retailer, we're not an IT company, and so the fewer servers that I can SSH into, frankly, the better. Um, I'm not interested in running servers, I'm interested in you know, you know, giving our business the platform to curate and create great fashion. So that's why we're trying to, try and, where we can, avoid actually provisioning servers or EC2 instances themselves. So you, you came up with either deploying Docker images on ECS or EKS, or running serverless completely on AWS Lambda and Step functions. For containers, you have two main options, Amazon ECS or EKS. Basically, usually you will choose EKS if you have already a Kubernetes practice or skills. Otherwise, Amazon ECS is very good and integrated in, in the AWS uh, ecosystem. And on the other side, serverless is, I think, the most interesting ser service, especially in the e-commerce um, world, because one, it's an event-based compute. So uh, a Lambda function is triggered when an event is produced. And actually, when you think about it, an order management system, it's all about events. A retail system is all about events. A new customer comes in, a new order is dispatched, a new stock product comes out of stock, everything's in an event. Yeah. And you just have to think about your business logic, writing for this, and that's actually, then it gets straightforward onto your order management um, at, at what you've done at River Island. Yeah, exactly. So, so um, yeah, the, the, way that, the way I think of serverless is that you know, if nothing's happening in your business for whatever reason, because maybe it's the middle of the night and none of your customers are doing anything, if you're using serverless, your cost is zero. Nothing, nothing's happening. You're only, you're only actually burning compute time if there's something useful to do, if there's a business event that's occurred. Um, so let, let's take that example to what we, what we did at, uh, at River Island. Do you mind if I take the clicker? Thanks. So um, uh, as, as I mentioned, we looked at doing our uh, web order pipeline uh, and, and really how we how we process a web order uh, through from our website and through, through ultimately to dispatch. So uh, we use a combination of um, Kinesis and, uh, and Lambda. So for, th for those not familiar with the, those services, um, essentially uh, uh, Kinesis is just a, uh, an event stream, uh, I guess similar to uh, Kafka. You know, I think of it as like a managed service Kafka um, or, or a JMS topic for those in the Java world. Um, the and a Lambda function is, you know, I've got a piece of code, little, uh, little function that I want to run, a method, uh, and, I, and Amazon can just wrap that up for me and deal with all of the, the gubbins around executing it. All I care about is the code itself and, and the business logic. So it lets me forget about, I don't have to worry about clusters, setting up um, containers, Docker, anything. I just wrap up my code with the, the, the Lambda uh, SDK. So it's uh, pretty sweet. So. The way, that, the way that we think about this is we've got an event producer, and uh, it will produce an event in this, you know, in our, in our scenario, it's our website, our, our traditional e-com stack, three-tier.net application, and uh, it, it now will produce orders and push them onto a Kinesis uh, event stream. And it just uses the standard uh, uh, Kinesis um, uh, libraries to, to do that. It just pushes direct onto a Kinesis stream. And that's, that's a state, it's an order that has just been placed. Um, then you've got a transition, which is a Lambda function. Uh, in our case, the first thing we do is just you know, do some basic validation routines on that order. Uh, you guys will be familiar with that sort of thing. Just check there's no you know, weirdness, that it's got a total, there are, you know, there's no, no missing products, that sort of thing. Basic checks. And then off the back of that Lambda function, when it's done that, you've got a new state, you've got a validated order, or, or perhaps uh, an order that's failed validation uh, as a separate stream. And then on, so on and so forth, and you can link together uh, a, a Lambda function, and then, or a step function if you want to do something a bit more sophisticated, then an event stream, then a Lambda function, then an event stream. Uh, and really, the way to think of this in, in uh, uh, you know, from an engineering point of view, it's, it's, it's a state machine. 
just like any other order processing engine that you can buy off the shelf or, or, or comes rolled in, your, in a, one of these big packages like from Hybris or, or whoever. Uh, and that's all it is. It's just a state machine. So um, we actually also figured out that you know, even if you've got a system that perhaps doesn't play nice with uh, you know, all these fancy new services from Amazon, we, we run a whole load of uh, big old Oracle database, databases, for example. You can you know, quite easily uh, push to, event uh, to Kinesis event streams from, from those databases even, because you can stick API gateway in front of them, and then pushing onto the event stream is simply a case of making an HTTP uh, or HTTPS uh, uh, call. So, and we can do that from an Oracle database, no problem, just from a trigger or a store procedure. So you can even event source from your heritage estate. It's also worth noting that once you've done this, you can add new subscribers to those event streams. So you've got interesting things that are going on in your business, like new orders being placed, being validated, being dispatched, you know, being uh, uh, picked in the, in the warehouse. Those events are now available as, as, uh, as event streams that anyone in your organization can subscribe to. So I might have some new piece of functionality to uh, maybe um, send a, a dispatch email saying, hey, your items are, are on their way, or, or perhaps just an order confirmation email, whatever. I can subscribe to that, those existing event streams, and I can do that as a separate team that perhaps never even speaks to the original team who built the original pipeline. Uh, and crucially, I can build that new, new piece of functionality without regression testing the original pipeline because I'm just a new subscriber. I'm just listening to those event streams. I don't need to retest everything that's gone before, and that is a game changer. When you can do that, it means that your, your ability to move at pace massively, massively Im improves. So uh, for the techies in the audience, if you're looking for uh, a good you know, business case for this to, to get your uh, leadership teams to invest, this is a really good one. You can add new features without regression testing all of the old gubbins that you've had before. Um, so that's really cool. Um, another nice little feature, so uh, just to call out, you might have, a, in this example here, we've got a you know, Lambda function subscribing, got a little step function uh, doing some processing, and then uh, a Docker container that's perhaps doing something a little bit more sophisticated. Maybe it's a, an, order, um, uh, an order history service that's just providing a nice little uh, rest, RESTful API uh, against um, some state, which is in DynamoDB here, uh, right at the bottom there. With DynamoDB, if you've got, let's say, all of your order, orders uh, being updated in there, every change that's that happens to your, uh, in your DynamoDB is available by default in a Kinesis-compatible uh, uh, event stream out of the box from uh, DynamoDB. So we actually use this at River Island for ex exactly this use case, our order history service. Uh, out of the bottom of the persistence, the DynamoDB persistence, we get the event stream. So whenever a, uh, something changes on an order, we've got an event. And hey, presto, we can subscribe to that with another Lambda function and do something useful and interesting. So that's a really neat little feature of DynamoDB that's uh, not, not always obvious to people. <coughs> Excuse me. So there's another uh, interesting little use case here as well. Um, you guys will probably be familiar with the term data lake. Everyone's, you know, it's a hot topic at the moment, trying to figure out what the data lake is and how to use it. Uh, I'm not going to go into that here. Um, but if you have, if you've developed this kind of architecture, uh, as we have with, you know, event streams available, actually, you've, it's then really, really, really easy to start creating uh, your data lake because actually, what does a data lake want? It wants all of those events, those cool things, interesting things that are happening in your business available. So you've got all those event streams available. You can create a little Lambda function to subscribe to those, push them into an S3 bucket. Um, just we, we do this as uh, every event uh, is atomic, and every event just gets pushed in as a binary object into S3. Uh, and, that, and that's easy. So however, the astute among you will realize that orders, uh, as, as we're dealing with in our case, have a lot of PII uh, sensitive data in them. So no problem. We just put in another Lambda function that subscribes to uh, changes in that original S3 bucket. It has, you know, I don't know, 10 or 15 lines of code in there that just uh, load in the object. It's just a JSON uh, payload for an order. Uh, and we can strip out all the PII data, address data, and what have you, and then resave that into another uh, S3 bucket, which is now 
uh, like PII cleansed. And anyone in our, our organization can now subscribe to that bucket and we can make it, you know, the, the security controls around it relatively relaxed because there's no customer sensitive data in there. So it's a really, really neat pattern. And, you know, we, we, uh, we did this to give you an idea. Uh, when we suddenly went between the time we realized that we could do this and actually implementing it and having dashboards in front of the business was like, I think about two days tops, something like that. But it's, it's trivial, really is trivial. Cool. Cool. So, do you want the clicker back? Yes, okay. thank you. Um, we've talked about compute power. Um, so, you build these cool new uh, services, but how do we? connect them together. So you mentioned a bit around Kinesis and NQS already. Um, so the first principle is why loose coupling is because if you have loose coupling, you will get actually better resiliency. Because you are building your new services one at a time, or actually probably several at a time, and you don't want dependencies. Because dependencies between services introduce unavailability. Second uh, principle is API, our messaging as a pattern. You, don't, you never want services to use the same database. Otherwise, we are going back to this problem we had before, having this central uh, single point of failure, which is one database. You want the services to talk to each other using messages or API. And and last one, yeah, using business functions. So for this, we mentioned the three services. The first one is Amazon API Gateway to expose internally and also externally because it's a retail system. So you probably have a lot of partners or third parties that want to access your data, want to have your uh, access to your catalog, to your prices, to or push maybe data. Um, and that has to be done also through APIs. And second thing is to move messages, event objects. You have probably two main options is to use SQS or Kinesis. And we've seen customers struggling with this very classical questions on shall I use SQS or shall I use Amazon Kinesis? And I know, Charlie, that you've been struggling with this question too. And yeah. There's no black and whites. You, you got it. And so so, so it, exactly. So these these are the two options most often touted by people uh, in the know, uh, and indeed we we looked at both at, at River Island. Um, we ha currently uh, have landed sort of on the side of um, uh, Kinesis. I think predominantly it's mostly just out of ease. Uh, Kinesis and Lambda play together really really nicely. Um, it, 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 they, it, getting them to tied together. Uh, requires very little, um, you know, infrastructure code. Uh, we use Terraform. Um, sorry, not CloudFormation. That's fine. Um, <laughs> so, uh, and it, it's it's trivial to do that. We, um, you know, what all the stuff we've done, uh, we could have done it with uh, SQS um, and and SNS if if we wanted to. We could probably make that work, no problem. Um, we mostly go with uh, Kinesis just because it's easier, uh, especially now that SQS, you know, has uh, uh, FIFO. Uh, you know, it makes the choice maybe not, not so easy or, or not so black and white, as you say, Bastian. Hmm. Uh, I think probably you, it's not that critical whether or not you get this right. Uh, you know, there's no right or wrong answer. Uh, the only things that I would say to, to, worth considering is if you really know that you're going to have to deal with massive scale, you know, like you're running a trading system or, or, or dealing with a really large number of messages, then you, you probably want to go with Kinesis just because it, it's designed with that in mind Best. from the ground up. Yep. Um, as, as it stands at River Island, we, we don't deal with that sort of massive scale. Um, uh, and so we're, we're running every, every Kinesis stream at a single shard, and it's fine. Um, frankly, the cost difference, I mean, when you, in reality, it's, there's not that much in it. You know, when, when a Kinesis stream is like 10 bucks a month, I mean, for a single shard, if, you, if you're doing useful stuff with it, I mean, who cares, <laughs> you know? So it's, uh, it's, it's yeah. not, not, a, not, a, not a reason not to use it. Yes, exactly. So, um, so we've seen uh, messaging with compute. And the last design implementation is to choose which storage service you will use for your service. So for your next gen, it has to be open and extensible 
again, future-proof. You don't want to be closed in, in one single vendor, single database or uh, vendor, because you want to be um, agile. Has to be cloud-native to achieve massive scale and residency. Multi-region ready. Probably you are not multi-region right now. It's a very hard problem to solve. But in a few months or years, maybe your business one will want to expand to another continent. You probably run on in the US, and if you open something in Asia, probably you will have to think about multi-region. And choosing your object storage or your database that has to be that can be multi-region and that solves you uh, problems for later. Yeah. And, and, and the last uh, part is scale ready. Again, you never know what's going to be your peak. So it's best if you have a, a system that can scale uh, massively and not fixed in a box or in a VMs, whatever. So you have basically three main options from the structured database. So I mentioned Amazon Aurora, which is the uh, database uh, that we uh, propose that is MySQL or Postgre compatible. It's cloud native. It's really scalable. And it works very well with uh, existing complex strong schema. Uh, for example, it's already uh, compatible and certified by SAP Hybris. So I really engage you if you're running a Hybris to move to Aurora, because you will get resiliency scale out of the box. And it's already multi-region ready. We are working on having even multi-master um, um, to um, achieve scale. In the middle, you have the NoSQL database, Amazon DynamoDB. It's very uh, suited for e-commerce because it's very low latency. That's what we want for your customers. And it's more focused on having one object. And we are all building now event, business events. Yep. So one in business events, that works very well with a NoSQL database. Using a, using a NoSQL data store as well helps you hit some of your agility um, objectives because um, actually you can your, your, your uh, applications can start storing uh, new attributes without having to worry about you know, managing schema changes and, and, and all of that. If you've, those of you who've done that and managed uh, um, upgrades to think, you know, systems running on traditional uh, relational databases, um, you know, when you make a schema change, you know, how do you roll back from that in the event that the upgrade you know, goes bad? You know, that's, that's a difficult problem to manage. Uh, with schemaless databases, you, you, you pretty much avoid that. Um, so that, that's, a, that's another tick in their favor. Yeah. And the last uh, thing to, to consider is using an object store like Amazon S3, which works really well for events and building a data lake like you, you already mentioned, Charlie, yeah. so I won't uh, go into details. Um, so that's your choices. I know that there's no right, right or wrong choices. Yeah. It's all more about uh, choosing the right feature for your requirement, yeah, we, we use a mixture, um, uh, as Bastian said. So, you know, we we use uh, Aurora. We, we we really like it. Um, uh, as an FYI, we have we have uh, had a, a failover. It was actually our screw up rather than anything that Amazon did. But we have uh, failed over in production, and it did work. Uh, and it did fail over nicely in seconds, which was cool. Uh, we actually didn't didn't notice that it happened for quite a while, uh, but that was that was our fault. <laughs> um, so that that was good. Um, you know, we are using uh, DynamoDB, as I mentioned, and we're kind of using that, those, those streams that come out of the bottom there. They're a, a nice little bonus feature. Um, uh, you know, we've got some teams that like Postgres. Uh, we've got a you know, big uh, Oracle uh, developer community in uh, River Island, so they, they get on really nicely with, uh, with Postgres. So you know what? Um, if teams are most effective with that tool, then why not? Um, you, you, when, when you're starting to break down your monolith into smaller chunks, you can actually be less picky from a, from a sort of a leadership point of view uh, on what tools people use because the blast radius is much smaller. So, you know, I've got teams that want to use Postgres. That's cool with me. Um, and we use S3, uh, as, as you mentioned, as a foundation of our data lake. So we use all of the above.
Um, so to finish, we wanted to talk about e-commerce event sourcing because it fits very well to your discussion and, and to your customers. Um, so a partner is actually nothing without a quote from Martin Fowler. So that's the, his quote from uh, his blog post a few years ago. Um, here I would call out the two important um, object is everything has to be captured as an event object and each of these events have to be stored in the sequence they, bear, they were applied. That actually works very well because events, well, we already have done this. Every business event is stored on S3 or DynamoDB and it's moved from services with Kinesis or SQS. Done, very good. And all these events has to be playable in sequence. But the good, the good thing is if you have all your events stored on S3, then you have out of the box the possible solution of querying these events using services like Amazon Athena or Amazon EMR or even third parties that can query directly S3 and be able to replay uh, your events, your sequence, and be completely compatible with event sourcing. We've actually used this for disaster recovery um, as well. I would encourage any of you who are adopting this type of architecture, do put your, if you're using Kinesis or SQS, really do push those events into S3, even if you don't have a use case for them right now. Because what it means is, if you screw something up downstream, you, you know, you've got a, some dodgy code in one of your downstream Lambda functions, for example, um, you can go back to the source and you can quite easily replay those events out directly out of S3 once you fix the problem uh, and, and, and replay it all through the system to correct any downstream impact. So really do stick those events into S3 because it, it will save you. We, uh, we, we screwed up and it helped us. So if we go back to your diagram that you've already seen earlier, yeah. um, how did you implement it, this business event? Well, so if you, if you click here, one more, there we go. So yeah. really what I wanted to call out on this one, guys, is that where earlier I was saying, you know, it's a state transition diagram, you've got state. Really what you've got is business events. And, and this is a really, 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 as I say, the, the pivotal theme to what I would like to get across to you guys is that by making those, the, using this, this pattern of uh, event-driven architectures uh, and, and serverless architecture, in, in, in fact, you've actually got those business events available and consumable uh, so that you can do new and interesting things with them uh, from, uh, from day one. So it's, it's a really, really, really powerful uh, 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 statement and a really, really powerful way to improve. Uh, we've got to the point now, because we've done this, uh, we, we've gone from a world where we would do, uh, you know, uh, major feature releases, you know, would take months uh, and be very, very infrequent. We had the business waiting, you know, it took us, we've only, well, recently we've re re released uh, gift cards, taking gift cards on our website. That was a feature the business has been wanting for years, but because our architecture was so tightly coupled previously, the cost of doing that was astronomic. And so it had really pushed, pushed the business or prevented the business from doing that. When we bit the bullet and decoupled all of this and created these event streams, suddenly you can start to do, introduce new features in, in days even. Um, so we've, we've, you know, we redid our uh, integration with our fraud checking service recently. Uh, I didn't even know the team had done it. Uh, I turned up uh, you know, on, on Friday afternoon, I had to sit, sit down with one of the teams, and they said, oh, here, have a look at this, Charlie. And one guy had done it in four days and pushed it live. Um, it, was, it was incredible. So when you start to do this, the pace of change just shifts in, uh, up 10 gears. It's incredible. So let's uh, wrap up. Do you have at least five minutes Q&A um, in, the, in the room? Um, so that's a, a summary of actually what we've been discussing on how to build uh, your next generation e-commerce. Uh, coming for every service has to have storage, messaging and compute, fronted by API Gateway. And on the left, you have Amazon CloudFront. And the cool thing with CloudFront is that you are able to route customers to a different systems based on a specific page. So if you implemented search, well, you can just get your search directed to your new next generation and the rest is served by your legacy system.
So to wrap up, these are the next steps for you to go build your e-commerce platform. I wanted to say always start from your customers, which will drive your business requirements. Start by getting your on-premise retail system to AWS to modernize it, to get the first benefits and to get ready and, and learn from, from how it works on AWS. And then build one functionality, search, order management, payment, and measure the success of it. And, and learn also from your failures here. And iterate as quickly as possible to other functionalities. And to finish, I would say start small and think big. Because in the end, you are building the future of your company in the e-commerce space. Thank you. We have five minutes for Q&A. Yep. Um, there's two mics if you, if you can come uh, to the mic if you have. I'll, uh, I'll also hang around outside afterwards as well. In somewhere we'll find a place in the lobby nearby if anyone wants to talk to us as well. Thank you. Anyone with questions? Stick your hands up. No? Oh, we've got a couple on this side. Is there somebody with a mic? Go on. Talk to the mic. Should work. If yeah. Oh, there is a mic. Just stood there, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Hello, hello. Hey, go for it. Do you have problems with cold starts on your Lambdas? Do we have problems with cold starts? Um, most of what we're doing is uh, asynchronous. So it, it, we, no is the answer. Um, uh, Bastian and I have been debating this for some time yes, as to uh, whether or not it's appropriate to use Lambda for uh, synchronous services. Um, uh, I think the, the answer is um, uh, it depends on the nature of your workload. Uh, Lambda uh, cold starts will be hit uh, uh, essentially as a factor of your concurrency. So essentially, uh, as your load increases uh, it, 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 to, to the point where um, you, you hit the concurrency level of perhaps a single function, you, you then Amazon has to boot you up a new uh, Lambda function, and, and there you'll hit the cold start. So uh, I think the th my, my theory at the moment, to, to be proven, is that if you're operating at really, really high scale, and you're doing a large number of requests per second, um, actually, the percentage of cold boots that your customers will hit will probably be pretty low. So maybe, maybe it's appropriate for that use case. But for us, we avoid the problem by doing, we're using it mostly for asynchronous stuff, uh, and then you'd have to worry about it. Thanks. No worries. Um, yeah, I just wanted to know if you followed any patterns or had problems with item potency, like duplicate events, like did you generate unique event IDs, or like Kinesis is at least one semantics, right? Yeah, so yeah, yeah have, we, have we had problems with item potency? Um, well, do you want to take this one? Uh, yeah, well, um, that's, a, that's a problem to tackle because, yeah, you, like you mentioned, Kinesis can have duplicates that can happen. So you always have to design your system to be, to use, to be able to reproduce the same events. And yeah, a, a way that we dealt this, with right. this. So basically, where we can, we try and avoid the problem. And it, obviously, it depends on the use case. Uh, where we can't avoid the problem, uh, uh, what, and that, we, we, we've done, uh, uh, we've got a pattern, so in our order, uh, order pipeline, um, uh, as I mentioned, we've got that kind of or, what we call our order backbone, uh, and that's a DynamoDB backed um, persistence. Uh, so, so actually there, um, we, we essentially deal with um, IDA potency by uh, the Lambda function first checks with a RESTful uh, synchronous API on the order backbone to check if it's actually already done, dealt with this order. Um, so you, you can deal with it that way. Um, so yeah, so it, it is a challenge, definitely. Yep. So, sorry, say that again? I'm not familiar with those standards. Sorry. Yeah. Do, do you know? No, I don't know, sorry. But let's, let's take the question offline. Yes, first, probably. So uh, two quick questions. Um, how do you guys uh, debug your uh, stuff in, in with this event-managed uh, uh, event-driven system? And uh, do you guys have some kind of backdoor for someone to throw in an event in the, in the case where you, know, you had an error processing one of the event? How do you rerun, like, 
how do you how do you put that event back in the system to be re-triggered somehow? Okay, uh, so we 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 do have a. a, a, a Various teams have implemented various different uh, backdoors for, for re-uploading re events, um, uh, and most of them do it from S3, so they, they just develop a really neat little way for them to manually trigger a, a re-upload from the S3 archive, uh, and that then works for DR purposes as, as well. Uh, debugging, uh, you can use uh, Amazon X-Ray to help with that. We actually don't yet, although we probably will. Uh, we, just, we just use decent logging standards, and we log to uh, CloudWatch logs uh, and then we aggregate using uh, an elk stack, which that helps us debug what's going on. So, I think we probably need to yeah, wrap up. Yeah, we need to wrap up. Thank you, everyone. But we'll be around uh, in the corridor if you have more questions. Yeah. Thank you. Cool. Thanks, guys.